also, in case you missed it, go blue. All right, here we go. So my name is Tori. If you are new, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at The Well. Good to be with you all this morning. We're actually finishing up uh, in our Luke series. Some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll catch you up later, all right? So we're finishing up in our Luke series, and we've been looking at all the different miracles of Jesus and the way that these miracles are pointing us towards something beautiful about who God is and uh, really the, the majesty, the fullness of Christ in and through some of these miracles. And so today we're looking at what I would argue is the most hopeful one, and we're landing our series here today, and it's really the miracle of resurrection. And what that reality points to is that we, if we believe in this miracle, then we can actually have this accredited to us too And we truly believe as followers of God that we will live forever, right? That we will literally live life, full life forever. And that's what we'll be hitting on today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter 24 is where we will be. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, uh, the usher is going to be coming forward in a moment uh, with some Bibles. If you would just slip up your hand, they'll pass you one. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, that's actually our gift to you. We want you to take and to keep that. And so uh, please feel free to, uh, man, bring that home, read it during the day, during the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone app. If you have the version app, type in uh, or click on events, type in the Well Austin, and you can follow along that way. There are notes, places for the scriptures and all of that. You can also just take this link right here and put it right into your browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way as well. Uh, We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word. We want you to see that we're not kind of being cute with the text or we're not making this up. What I believe is that so often, even in the story that we're reading today, we see that as the scripture are being unfolded, these new truths about God kind of appear to us, and sometimes they appear for us not from the man who is talking or from even the worship music, but literally it starts coming off the page, and so we want your eyes on the text this morning, all right? So let's go ahead, and uh, the ushers are still walking around, feel free to raise your hand, but uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, and we're going to pick it right up in verse 13. As you're turning there, uh, we have already seen that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. We see in uh, Luke chapter 24 that the tomb is empty, uh, that the women go and they try to find Jesus and there was nobody there and the angels say, why are you looking for the living or amongst the dead? He is not dead, he is risen. And so all of a sudden this news kind of starts traveling and and then we get to these men, our boys, our our disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. So uh, Genesis, Luke chapter 24, pick it up in verse 13. Since that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. All right, so a couple of things off the bat. First of all, we immediately see an evidence toward the physical resurrection of Christ. And you may not see it immediately but uh, from just these verses, but immediately Luke is trying to highlight for us that, man, Jesus is actually risen from the grave. Why do I say that? Well, uh, it says that Emmaus was seven miles away from Jerusalem, okay, Now, one of the early reports in the early church time is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that Jesus was hurt very, 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 very badly. And then the disciples, they took his body and they kind of healed him up. And then they presented him and said, hey, see, here we go. Like he's resurrected. And the disciples kind of fabricated this rumor. And that was what many people even believed at this time. Okay. And so Luke actually makes it really clear to highlight for us something that's happening. Jesus three days after hopping off of the cross, is taking a seven-mile walk to Emmaus, all right? And so really, that leaves us one of three possibilities. Either Jesus is on some Wolverine mutant healing type of stuff, all right? 
this story is made up, which we'll get to in a second, or Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because ain't nobody suffering what Jesus suffered and then just kind of take a walk, right, with Jesus. I don't know why I'm making him walk like a G, because he is, all right? <laughs> Jesus is a gangster. He defeated death, right? But all of a sudden, Jesus here is walking with these disciples immediately. Like, if I stub my toe on the wall a little bit too hard, your boy ain't walking seven miles, right? Not even on pavement. If I step on one of Kyria's Legos, like, I ain't walking seven miles, okay? And so maybe Jesus is a little bit tougher than me. But listen, his feet were nailed to wood, Right? He was beat. He was massacred. In fact, the text says that he was unable to be recognized as a human. I mean, think about that, friends. Right? Like, you would have been walking by, seeing Christ, and been unsure if that was like a man or like a mangled animal on the cross. This is how massacred our Savior was. And then three days later, he's walking seven miles. Right? And so because I don't think that he's on some Wolverine stuff, then that really leaves us with either two answers. Either this story is made up, the disciples are making this up, or Jesus actually overcame death. He resurrected and was given a new body. And I don't think the story is made up because of what happens next. Keep reading, verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? All right, now I love that the two men just kind of stopped walking and they, they looked sad, it said, right? Like they're kind of having this conversation about Jesus and who he is and, and what he did. And then Jesus is like, hey, what's up? What y'all talking about? You know, and they look sad, like, like uh, uh, did you not hear about this, you know? And I think that this is a, a huge indication. First of all, I love the fact that Jesus is kind of trolling them at that point, right? Like, he's like, no, I haven't. What, what, what? What happened, right? And so here goes Jesus, which I just love. Our God is a humorous God, okay? I feel like if it was April 1st back then, then he would have been like, I'm dead, April fools, ha <laughs> right? Every pastor in America used that joke, okay, uh, today. So Jesus here, right? He's uh, showing all this evidence. Why do I say that? Because he says, are you the only one? Are you the only one? The disciples say, are you the only one who has not heard about this? See, everybody was already hearing about what had happened to Jesus. Even though crucifixions, they actually happened often, this one was a little bit different. And so they're like, have you not heard? Are you fasting from social media right now, brother? Like, like this is all everybody's talking about, right? Everybody is talking about this, the resurrection and the death of Christ. And just three days after he died already, all of the people are still talking about what happened to Jesus there on the cross. In fact, later in the story, we see that two of the women actually came and said, hey, we actually have heard that he is risen. And they start spreading this as well. And all of a sudden, everybody starts talking about that. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would go on talking about the resurrection to say that 500 people would claim that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. They saw his physical resurrected body. 500 people, right? Like if we went to a court of law and we were trying to charge somebody with a crime and then we brought in 500 witnesses and they all said the same thing, yo, somebody's going to jail, right? That's enough evidence, it says. And there are 500 people, everybody's talking about it. This is not a story that was kind of kept in secret and then 30 years later, all of a sudden it rose up. No, everybody's talking about it because see, if that were not true, when Luke is writing this and this starts getting spread, they say, man, did you hear of Jesus? And they would go, Jesus, 
I think I kind of heard of him, like that one dude, right? Like, no, everybody knows what's happening here. In fact, so much so that there were many, many disciples and followers of Jesus that were willing to give their life because they said, no, I saw him raised from the dead. He was resurrected. He is alive. Because see, back then you weren't protected by your government. If you proclaim that you were a Christian, you would very likely be killed. And so Paul's saying, look, there are 500 people, most of them are still alive, who are willing to say, man, I saw Jesus. You would not lay down your life for something that you knew was a lie. You wouldn't do it, right? If there was reward or gain in it, maybe you would, but the reward was your death right? And these people are saying, no, 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 we've heard. And so even here already, just three days after, everybody's talking about this man named Jesus. There was something about him. And so immediately off the text, we get our first point that's really important for us today, and that the text is immediately showing us that Jesus physically, literally rose from the dead. Jesus physically, like bodily, and literally, right? Not like figuratively, not like in people's minds. Like he literally has risen from the grave. This actually is what our faith hinges on. Because see, the cross of Christ, that pays the penalty of our sin. What we believe about the cross of Christ is that as Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin that separated us from God. And if we believe in him, then our sins are paid for. We are able to reunite with our Father. We get relationship with God again. We are covered. All of our shame and guilt is now placed onto Jesus, and we get joy. This is what the cross, the blood of Jesus is. But the resurrection, this shows that the payment that he paid was effectual, that it was true, that, that it actually happened, that it is a credited to us. Without the resurrection, we have somebody who lived a great life and who paid, but we have no assurance of it. But with the resurrection, what this is saying to us is that if you believe in Jesus, not only are your sins paid for, but you can be reunited with the Father and that you too, if you believe in him, you will resurrect one day, that you will actually live forever. In fact, the scriptures go as far to say is you will never die, right? Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? we sing, right? Where's your sting? There's no more sting in death even because Jesus paid for it and then defeated the grave. He overcame death. And so this is why this story starts with this, with showing, look, there's a physical resurrection of Jesus. There's some tangible evidence to this because our faith hinges on this faith as to a fact as to whether or not somebody actually rose from the grave. But then let's keep reading. Let's pick it up. Verse 19. It says, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that this, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to see the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. We see here the men recall everything that happened, and they actually had a really great synopsis on what was happening. See, what was happening is that they had this hope for a savior, for a Messiah. They had these, these dreams, these plans almost as to what the savior would do, what the Messiah would mean, what it, what it meant that Jesus came to live for them. See, these men, they were in a really great place because they were wanting something more than what was right in front of them. 
In fact, all throughout the scriptures, you see this phrase that there were people that were awaiting the kingdom of God. They were longing. They were, they were hoping. They were desiring for more than what was right in front of them. They were longing to have a more rich, a more full life. And I would actually argue that that's where a lot of us, we fall short, right? See, it isn't that we're not good enough people or we don't have enough theological understanding or, or we haven't assented enough or, or come to church enough or whatever it may be. My thought is that as a people, we are a people who are just far too easily satisfied. You see, these disciples, they were longing. They were hoping. They said, we hoped that the Messiah would do this. We, we longed for him to do this. And, and they were longing for something more than what was right in front of them. And we as a people, we too often were satisfied with what's right in front of us. Even though if we listened to our soul, we would hear it yelling out at us that there is more than what is right in front of us. We become satisfied with mediocre jobs and decent relationships and cheap thrills, right? Like as long as you make 60000 a year, then man, I'm good to go, right? When your soul is saying, no, 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 you were made for so much more. We actually take this hope that they had and we suppress it often. And these disciples, they were in a great place for they were longing for more than what was right in front of them. C.S. Lewis, who's a 20th century philosopher and, and author, he said this, so if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And these men, they were longing, right? This is a great thing. But, all right, in their longing, they were also missing a little bit. They were missing it a little bit. Their expectations of who Jesus was and of what he would do is actually having them completely miss the point. They had these expectations of what Jesus would bring and what it would mean that the Messiah would come to them. And they had all these thoughts about who the Messiah was. And their expectations were leading them so astray that they couldn't see that the Messiah they loved and that they cared for was standing right next to them. All right? And I think that we too are a people who often have our expectations off about Christ and who he is. And because of that, we miss what he's doing in our life right in front of us. And so then Jesus goes on to the disciples, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This may seem like strong language. We don't use the word fool a bunch. But what Jesus is saying is, hey, you're, you're missing the picture, right? Like, that's not the right thinking. That's, that's incorrect thinking, okay? You're actually missing who I am. And he begins to then paint a more clear picture for them about what the Messiah would be, who he is, what it meant that a Savior had come to Israel. Now, first of all, how dang awesome would this have been, okay? Emmaus is a seven-mile walk. And to walk seven miles, it takes approximately two to four hours and you have the very author of Scripture, right? Like the very man who wrote Scripture walking with you, unfolding Scripture to you. Like this is the best seminary class ever taken, right? And here are the disciples. They, they get the king uh, uh, unveiling to him. And here's once again, friends, more evidence of who Jesus is. See, it wasn't just that he had resurrected and that he was now living amongst them. 
It wasn't just that he was a God who uh, came down to earth and, and died and that if we believe in him, we have life in him. It wasn't just that the women said they saw him raised. It wasn't just all these things. But now all of a sudden, Jesus begins to show how all of the scriptures, the Old Testament, they all point toward his coming. Moses and the prophets is just another way of using the language we would use as Old Testament. So Genesis to Malachi said, there are all these things that speak about me, that, that point to who I am and to what I would do. And he begins to unpack them for them. You know, there was a secular scientist and statistician who uh, was trying to disprove that Jesus was the Messiah. And what he said was, is that there were so many prophecies, there were so many predictions in the Old Testament about what the Messiah would be and what he would do, that even if a man had all the knowledge of all of the predictions, it would be uh, scientifically, statistically, right, impossible for him to actually uh, fulfill all of those things. And at the end of all of his study and all of his number crunching and all of the research, he came up with this number of what the possibilities would be that a man would be able to come down and fulfill all that the Old Testament spoke of him. And what happened was, is he said that the number is just too big. If I said it, we'd be like, I don't know what that means, right? So what he uh, compared it to is he said, it would be similar to taking a monkey and putting him in front of a keyboard and taking the Webster's Dictionary and then putting it before the monkey and having the monkey type out from the very start of the page all the way to the very end of the book, every single word in perfect unison, every period, every comma, every exclamation point, all the letters, that there would be no mistakes. That is the possibility that some man came down and fulfilled everything that was spoken about him. Then he said, I love this line. It is impossible for God himself would have to come down to fulfill all of these things. Preach it, brother, right? Better sermon than I'm giving, right? Amen, that is true, right? We believe that Jesus was God and that he literally fulfilled everything that was spoken of him by the prophets, by Moses. He came and showed us a, a better way. He was a living example for us of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and all of these uh, uh, proofs, they all point to him over and over and over again that from the moment that man stepped in rebellion against God, God was planning a way to draw us back to himself. That from the moment we began to go astray, he was predicting that a son would come, that God would come down and live amongst us, and that he would bridge the gap from what separated us. The fractured relationship we had with God would be restored in this man. And over and over and over again, we see predictions about it. And then Jesus comes, and he pays that for us. He is the man that all of the Old Testament was waiting for and hoping for. And this is what Jesus unpacks to these two disciples. Now, I love what verse 16 says, though. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You see that there? They, they couldn't see who he was. Now, once again, they were looking for him. So this is huge because I think that many of us, we're not, we're not looking for God in any serious way, right? Like we suppress the yelling of our soul. That there's more out there. But they were looking for God, right? But their expectations actually kept them from seeing God correctly, See, the Jews, they were currently enslaved to the Romans at the time, and without diving too much into history, they, they thought that the Messiah, that he would come and he would establish an, an earthly kingdom. He would free them from Rome's tyranny, and that throughout Jesus' life, they thought that it would mean something in their life, that they would be freed from this Roman government, that Israel would be established again, that they would become a nation again. And this is their, their idea, their expectation, their narrative of Jesus. But because this was their narrative, it had them missing who Jesus was, and what he actually did for them. In fact, the Messiah is now resurrected, standing right in front of them, and they do not see it. 
See, if they had the right expectations, if they had the right narrative, they would have been at the tomb on the third day, like 8 7 a.m., bro, you coming out? Right? And they would have been ready for him. They would have been looking for him, but, but they weren't. Instead, it says they were sad. They were depressed even, right? Because they thought that this man would give them some sort of freedom. And because he did not give them that freedom, it, it landed them in this depression. And what they weren't realizing was that he offered them far more freedom than what was before them. They just didn't see it. Their expectation was freedom from Roman government when in reality, Jesus was trying to give them freedom from the way greater enemy of death. And this is what Jesus was pointing to. This is what he was showing. This is what he was highlighting. And for many of us too, we miss Jesus because we think that coming to him, we think that it means something. We think that there are these expectations. And so incorrect expectations prevent us from being able to see Jesus clearly. You tracking with that? If we have this idea of what it means to follow a Messiah, a Savior, that this man would come and give us freedom, if we think we know what that means, we put these expectations on him, and then he does not satisfy that, then we are not able to see God correctly, right? Like maybe you think that coming to Jesus means more money or better health or better relationships, and then you come to Jesus, you start trying to follow him, and you don't get those things. Well, then your expectations of the Messiah just failed you. And you begin to not be able to see that following the Messiah is way more than these things, right? But that's what we all of a sudden elevate. Or maybe you think that coming to Jesus means you have to be a good, a moral person, and you begin to paint these pictures of what the good life means, and then you don't feel like you need Jesus as much because, listen, there's a lot of people that will tell us how to be a good person, right? And so you begin to think that Jesus is just this moral teacher, or maybe he just gives you a get out of hell free card, right? And so you think, well, if I believe in him, I'm going to go to hell when I die. That's great. But you don't realize the impact that he has on your life today. And so your walk, your pursuit of Jesus doesn't radically shift you in any way. Our expectations of what it means to follow a savior can lead us astray. It can blind us if we're not careful, If we have the wrong narrative of who Jesus is and what he's done, we do not see clearly the beauty of the Messiah and who he is. And so these men did not see the narrative. And friends, what if your narrative of Christ, like what if it's off? What if you have the, the wrong narrative of what it means to follow Jesus? See, there was so much confusion for the Jews at the time as to what it meant to follow Jesus and and what it would mean to for a savior to come and be born. And the same is true for us. Like, how do you actually follow Jesus? What does that look like? Like, like for real, ask yourself that, right? Like, like, what does it mean that a Savior come? How does he bring life into your life? What does that look like, you know? If you believe today and then uh, what happens when you die? Or, or is it just about when you die? How does it impact today? Or, man, straight up, what if following Jesus is just boring? And that's your narrative of Christ is that this is boring. I ain't trying to do this, all right? Man, your narrative of Jesus would be off, and it would actually prevent you from being able to see the the beauty of who Jesus is. It would uh, put a veil over your eyes to not be able to see the beauty of the sun. You know, when I was uh, growing up, there was only one believer in my whole family, and it was my granny on my dad's side. And so nobody else around me were Christians, and it was just my granny. And man, I loved my granny. She had all of this joy right? And as somebody who is not a Christian, I could not explain where the joy came from or, or what it was. I would just always say, oh, she's just such a nice person. Not realizing that really what she's exuding for me is the very joy of Christ, but I didn't fully see that. You know, I just thought she was a nice person. 
And she followed Jesus. She would talk about Jesus here and there. And, and that was my narrative of what it meant like to follow Jesus, okay? Now, listen, I love my granny like crazy. She was influential in my family. My granny is also like 50 years older than me, okay? So growing up as a teenager, what I thought it meant to follow Christ was that it was unbelievably boring, right? Like I thought it meant you can't watch radar movies and that you have to listen to really, really bad music your whole life, right? <laughs> I can only imagine, right? And that's all... I just poo-pooed on everybody's 90s, all right? I'm sorry about that, right? Well, that's what I thought it meant, okay? Like, that's all I got, you know? Even you think about my culture, grew up in this hip-hop culture, and that's all I was exposed to. And I thought, man, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's going to be boring. It's going to be lame. And so I don't want to go to hell when I die, so I'll say I believe in him. But, but that's about it. It doesn't impact my life because my narrative was off, and then Jesus met me, and I tasted, and I saw that what I thought was awesome, that was actually what was lame. And that in reality, Jesus had all of these treasures for me, all of these riches for me that literally I could come alive in ways I couldn't even imagine before. This is what the gospel offered me, but I didn't see it. My narrative was off. I was missing Jesus and who he was. And for a lot of us, our narrative may be off about what it means to actually follow this man named Jesus. So Jesus unpacks for them. And let's keep picking it up. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going to go farther. So he's trolling them again, all right? But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. Right? I love this, right? I love this. So listen, friends, I want to be, this is an important note for us. What other God could you say, oh, wait a minute, can you please come in and have dinner with me? And does he stop what he's doing and he comes and he dines with you, right? See, all other gods, all other religions, even if you're kind of an atheist, you don't think there is a God, you yourself, you put these heavy burdens on yourself to appease and you got to do all these good works. Look, the disciples did not believe in Jesus yet when they asked him to come and dine. And he dined with them anyway. Even though they weren't followers, they didn't get it. He said, yes, I will come and I will dine with you. He, he took time to be before them. If you ask Jesus to stay, he will stay. This is beautiful, friends. That deserves more than one yeah, right? That is a good truth, friends, that he will stay with you if you ask him to stay. If you want him close, he comes close indeed. This is the beauty of our God. Jesus gives another evidence and he proves that he is physically resurrected because it says he broke bread with them. And what that means is that he ate with them and they believe that ghosts could not eat. And so Jesus now is eating with them. Later in the night in verse 42 and 43, it says he ate, uh, ate a piece of broiled fish, right? Which I just love that. It even said it wasn't like, you know, deep fried or, or grilled. It was broiled fish, right? And he ate a piece of it. Why? Showing that he's not a ghost. He's physically resurrected. But then he also just kind of vanishes from their sight, right? And so I love this. He has this physical resurrected body. He's walking amongst them. He's holding food. He's talking to them. And yet at the same time, there's something very different about his body. His body has overcome death. In fact, the disciples later, they go back and they tell everyone, we saw the resurrected Messiah. We saw him. And they're all gathered together in a room. And then it says Jesus all of a sudden is just in the middle of the room like, what up, y'all? 
right? Like Jesus, we see him doing these things that physically you can't do, and yet we see a physical resurrection. That means that there's something great amongst us here. There's something powerful amongst us here. He's not just a man that got back from the grave, but he is now a man that is showing this divine aspect of who he is, and yet a man still. He is both God and man, God able to save us, and man paying the penalty for our sins. This is what we see in Jesus. And then I love it. All of a sudden, they just don't see him anymore, right? Like, this is the truth all throughout the Gospels. In fact, whenever you read the Gospels, you see this truth highlighted over and over and over again, that a physical reality paints to a much deeper spiritual truth. And so I love that as soon as their spiritual eyes were open, they physically saw him no longer, right? But when they physically saw him, their spiritual eyes were closed, and I just love that, that, that Jesus once again is painting this, this reality using the physical aspect to a deeper, a spiritual reality. But here's a very important piece, friends, a very, very important piece. How was it that they all of a sudden understood who Jesus was? What was the switch, right? What happened to them that made them go from a dreadful, depressed, mourning people to a hopeful, alive people? What was that switch? See, it wasn't when the scriptures were being unfolded before them. They were unfolding the scriptures. Jesus, the very author of scripture, is unfolding it before them. And we believe unashamedly that the scripture is the word of God. It is how we filter truth. It is the foundation that we lay everything else upon, which is why Jesus goes back to the scripture to show this foundation. But that's not when they got it. It wasn't when the women came and, and told him that, hey, look, there's a resurrection. It wasn't a hearing about Jesus through somebody else. Friends, it was when they were fellowshipping, when they were dining, when they were in relationship with him. When he finally came into the house and he ate with them and he was close to them, that's when their eyes opened. Friends, don't miss this. Relationship is what opens your eyes to the beauty of who Jesus is. So you can have all of the theological truths unpacked for you. You can have all of the evidences of the coming and the, the, the present Messiah. You can have all of the, 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 the details laid out. You can have all of these ascents theologically or practically or apologetically and on and on and on and on. You can have all these people telling you about Jesus. This loudmouth guy up here screaming about Jesus, screaming about Jesus, right? But until you have a relationship with God, your eyes will not be fully open to who he is. Because our God is a relational God who longs to bring you close, who longs for intimacy. He doesn't just want your intellectual assent to who he is. He wants your heart, right? He wants to have fellowship with you, to be close to you. All of a sudden, even though they understand all of scripture, it was the bread, their fellowship that opened up their eyes to see. And this is true of us too, friends. Do you have a relationship with the living God? Do you have it? Do you have a relationship with, with the king of the world? Have you invited him into your home, into your dwelling, right? Have you asked him to stay? Have you tasted a little bit of, uh, of who he is? And he said, wait, 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 don't go. I want you back. I want you closer. I want more of you, right? Have you longed for Jesus in this way? This is what it means to know God. Your heart is open to the reality of who he is, and you ask him to come close, and close he comes. See, a lot of us, we have the wrong expectation of God, the wrong narrative of what it means to know and follow him. We think if we honor our parents, and if we're a pretty good person, and if we help a couple of homeless people, and if we don't cuss when we're in church, then we're good to go, 
right? And that's what our narrative of following God means. So our expectations then of Jesus become somewhat of a, a moral teacher. And we think, well, as long as I'm more moral, then that's what it means to follow God. That's not what it means to follow God. To follow God means you have a relationship with the God of the universe. This is crazy, right? It's crazy when you think about that truth. And yet this is what your soul is craving and crying out for. There is more than what is right in front of you. What narrative are you painting of the Messiah? Let's finish our text, verse 32. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, he has appeared to Simon. And they told all that had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, or fellowship. This is actually crazy because it means that they ran back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night, which is actually wildly dangerous at the time, right? Like there's no street lamps back then, okay? So it'd be like running through the hood in Philly in the middle of the night. You just don't do that. Right? And here they go. They're running back through because, man, they're excited, right? They're excited. They saw Jesus. What happened? Seeing Jesus, it forces a reaction out of you, friends. It forces you to move. Check this. You don't move and then see Jesus. You see Jesus, and that causes you to move right? You don't work your way to God, become a good enough person, orchestrate your life in such a way, ascend to these theological things about who God is. No, 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 no. You see a picture of the living God, and then this moves you like crazy because you realize God is real, and I have a relationship with him. He has revealed himself to me, right? You move, and then you see Jesus. This changes everything. Now, I actually love all the irony that's in this story. There's a ton of irony here. For example, if you go back to verse 21, it says that we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. How ironic. He was. But what they were hoping for was a way shorter salvation. It was a way less salvation. They hoped for a short-term, immediate freedom from the government. Cello, some of us hope for that too, right? And in reality, Jesus came to give them a long-term, eternal freedom from death. They were, what, this, what Jesus offered was so much better. And at times, we can have these short expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. We think that it means a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, or we become a little bit of a better person, and we don't realize the mounds of the treasure of Christ that is before us, friends. You can know God. You can know God. You can know God. See, in my granny, what I didn't see was this joy exuding from her. But then when I began to know God, that joy began to enter me. And it was inexpressible, 1 Peter 2 says. Or this hope that transforms understanding that you literally have so much hope or so much peace that you are unable to even communicate it to others, but you know it is there. You feel it because God transforms you, friends. There is something about knowing God. John Calvin, who was a 15th century theologian, and probably one of the most influential men in the Protestant faith, he said this, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Now listen, for those of you who do not know Calvin, my man's is a hyper intellect, okay? 
Like he's essentially a massive brain walking around on a stick, all right? Like you read it for more than six seconds and your brain like syntax errors, okay? And that's not because I was from Detroit public school systems, right? Like, like no, this is true. That, that's part of it, right? But Calvin is really, really smart, okay? And so what is this saying? This is saying there has to be a God. Why do I say that? Because if a hyper intellect can recognize it is not an intellectual ascent to who God is, but he penetrates deep down in the soul and blossoms your hearts in ways that are unimaginable. If somebody as smart as John Calvin can say that, that it is not a matter of the brain only, but that it is a relationship with the God of the universe, man, there must be a God, right? He got it. He saw it, and he himself had it. In fact, that's why he spent his whole life unpacking the intellectual truths of Jesus because he saw Jesus, and it transformed him. God can give you way more than what you think, friends, so much more than what you think. He came not just to show you a better way to live. He came to make you right with God, to save you from death, to bring you alive forever, to give you meaning and purpose and value in your life, not just eternally, but even right now. See, as I began to believe in Jesus, it wasn't just my eternal destiny that was impacted, but he began to show me the truth about who I was and who he made me to be. He transformed me. He made me come alive. He showed I have meaning and purpose and value even today. Friends, the fact that you are breathing means that God loves you and he has meaning and purpose and value for your life. He wants you to know him and he wants you to know what he thinks about you and how he's created you, and the things that he's wired you to do. And he wants to give you so much value where you begin to do things that impact not just this world, but that impact eternity. He wants you to be fully alive. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to taste the pleasures that are far beyond what is right in front of us. But we could be a people, like these disciples were in verse 25, that are slow to heart to believe, it says, right? We are slow to heart to believe what our souls are screaming out at us from the inside if we take enough time to listen. Most of us, we don't take enough time to think about the realities of Christ and the gospel and of our Savior. We are a people who are far too easily satisfied. We don't realize all that Christ has to offer. You can be quicker, my friends, to have confidence in your inner life. And listen, friends, Jesus is willing to walk with you. Have you asked him to? Have you asked him to come close? Have you asked him to stay? Have you invited him in to to know him in a beautiful way? See, God is willing to be close to you if you would just ask him, do you have a relationship with God like that? Has your heart began to burn within you as the scriptures are unpacked and maybe as you fellowship, maybe as you sing and worship, haven't you felt it, friends? Haven't you felt it? This is your soul yelling at you. There's more than what is right in front of you. We have to change our expectation, though, in our narrative of what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ is not an intellectual ascent. It is not some moral, I got to be a good enough person, come to church here and there, and then I'm good with God. No, Jesus wants all of you. And when he has all of you, he makes all of you come to life, and you have life like you never experienced it before. These disciples, they got it. They ran back. They were freaking out, right? Like, Jesus is good. This is what the gospel tells us. This is how we can know that we also can conquer death forever because Jesus conquered it for us. And so, friends, where are you at with God? What is your hope for him? Do you know him? Have you talked with him? Have you heard him talk to you? Has your heart burned within you even this morning as the scriptures are unfolding? And are you going to be a person who says, 
don't go. Don't go, Jesus. Come back. Come eat with me. I want more of you. Are you going to let him walk on? God wants to have a relationship with you, friends, and I pray that you would invite him in to come close, to fellowship with you, to dine with you, to be with you forever. And church family, listen, this is the beautiful truth of the reality of Jesus, that you were made for so much more. And if you believe this, friends, if you actually have taken this and beheld this, then it will radically change your life. Never, 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 never grow tired of hearing the gospel preached. Never grow tired of preaching the gospel to yourself. Never grow tired of singing about how beautiful our king is for this is life, friends, and life abundant. You can have it before you. I pray that each of us would ask Jesus to come close, even right now. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel, Jesus. That you, Christ, have said that we can dine with you. We can dine with you. We can eat with you. We can be close to you, Jesus. Friends, would you, God, would you help us to be close to you, to be friends of you, to draw near to the God who loves us? God, I confess that I am a person who so often I just, I go through the motions and come to church here and there and fellowship here and there. And I forget, I forget that I can have you. Man, Jesus, I thank you that this is why you laid out all these things for us in Scripture. This is why we can read. This is why we pray. This is why we sing songs. This is why we come to church. This is why we share our faith. This is why we disciple others. This is why you have laid all this out. It is not that we may be a better person, but it's so that we can know you. You have given us ways to know you. Thank you, God. Thank you. God, I pray that we would be a people that long to know you more and more. That the resurrection for us is not just this intellectual ascent, but it is a, a truth that penetrates our soul, that sits down in the recesses of our heart, and it blossoms us to life in ways that are unimaginable to us. God, I thank you for that reality, the truth that we can know you. And friends, I want you to know, as you're praying and, and talking to God, even right now, I mean, maybe you don't know where you're at with Jesus. Maybe you're wrestling with him. Maybe you know you do not have a relationship with the God of the universe. Man, friends, you can right now. The resurrection shows us that he is powerful enough to overcome all of the sin that separates us from God. You do not have to feel shame or guilt you do not have to feel burdened or weighed down. You do not have to feel apathetic or indifferent. You can know the God of the universe right now. You just say, Jesus, man, will you eat with me? <laughs> Jesus, will you show yourself to me? Will you come close to me? Jesus, I want you close. Friends, if you make that prayer, if you say, God, would you come in? He is a good enough God where he will. He will come. He will eat with you. He will be close to you. And he will reveal who he is to you. It is relationship with God that unveils the beauty of who God is. And you can have a relationship today. God, I pray that every person would decide to ask you to come close. And God, that we who have professed faith in you, that we would ask you over and over and over again, please come close. Please come close. Thank you for defeating death, Jesus. We pray this in your beautiful name.
Amen.